I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Les Standiford. Uh, Les is the Director of Creative Writing at Florida International University, and he's someone who has written probably about 450,000 books at last count. Um, Seems like it. Les is the writer of the John Deal Mysteries. Les started his career as a mystery writer writing John Deal Mysteries. John Deal was a contractor, an honest contractor, as uh, as uh, oxymoronic as that sounds. Yeah, they were fantasy. They were they were fantasy books, but they were marvelous, marvelous books. Uh, and then he made a career shift and went into writing nonfiction. And he wrote a book called Last Train to Paradise, which is the wonderful story about uh, Henry Flagler and the building of the railway from New York all the way down to Key West to Cuba. Uh, his uh, other books that he wrote are called Meet You in Hell. Um, he wrote um, a wonderful book that became a wonderful movie called The Man Who Invented Christmas uh, and a lot of other things that we're going to talk about uh in our conversation. But first, I want to welcome you, Les, and I want to uh, I want to ask you one very simple question. And that question is, I know, I know because I've known you for so many years that you're from the Midwest, and how did you end up in Miami of all places? Well, that's a pretty good question, uh, Mitchell. First, uh, let me thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Always a lovely setting. I always, it's kind of like 
going to the Keys for me. Uh, the minute I get there, I feel a certain sort of peace come over me. Uh, and that's the way I feel when I come into Books and Books. Well, thanks, I, Les. Well, it's true. Uh, interesting that you should ask that question because shortly after I married my wife, Kimberly, 36 years ago, uh, shortly before I met you, as a matter of fact, I took her to my hometown of Cambridge, Ohio. And it's a little place of 12,000 down the southeastern part of the state in the Appalachian Hills, really. And uh, not urban Ohio at all, a lot more like West Virginia than Ohio. And we were there for about two or three days. And she... Uh, looking around her in great bewilderment because she'd grown up in Miami and all her life. And finally she turned to me and said, now, wait a minute, really? Seriously? This is where you came from? And uh, I had to admit, yeah. But the fact is, you know, I'm only one of, you know, half a dozen people who've ever left Cambridge, Ohio. The rest uh, grow up and stay there, including my brother, who's... Uh, uh, terrified to come visit me in in Miami no way is he is he going outside the the city limits of Cambridge Ohio unless it's to a nearby golf course but uh, he finds it uh, incredibly fast paced and hectic and dangerous and frightening and uh, all the things that caused me to want to come down here and and, and uh, where I found it fascinating i i really knew and don't ask me why i knew from the moment i was old enough to think about such things that i would be leaving cambridge i love it uh, in many ways, uh, there were one, there are wonderful people there. This is where I was nurtured, made to feel like I could do anything I wanted to. But I also knew that I couldn't stay there. I was going to have to go out into the bigger, broader, wider world and explore. And I had a uh, Florida was always of interest to me, as was the American West. And before I came to the uh, to Florida, I lived for twenty years in California, uh, West Far West Texas. Utah, uh, loving that. Well, tell me, tell me, live, growing up in Cambridge, what, what I'm trying to get to is basically how you became the writer that you became. Because you grew up in a town that probably didn't have a lot of writers who came from Cambridge, Ohio. And, and, and maybe you didn't have a lot of role models. So what was the 10-year-old less like um, uh, when he was back in Cambridge. Well, we'll get to 10 in a second, but I can remember uh, when I was in college and wondering what I was going to do. I really wanted to be a writer, but I was set to go to, to uh, law school. I actually went to, attended Columbia Law School. Isn't it funny how many writers went to law school? Yeah, yeah. So, and you went to law school? I did. Yeah. I went to writers, booksellers, all of so us. So many of my students, my master's students, are attorneys coming back. Uh, for second, I think uh, we were all English majors, and English majors had no idea what to do in those days, <laughs> other than go to law school. I think. Well, anyway, uh, when I was twenty-one, about to graduate, and wondering what I was going to do, I went into a bar called the Point, a very well-known, family-owned and operated bar there for fifty years uh, by the Ian family. And uh, Jimmy and Johnny Ian were brothers who ran the place, and I'm sitting there having a beer and talking to Johnny and. Uh, those were the days when bartenders were really like father confessors, and I'm talking to him uh, about 
going, I don't know if I should go to law school, Johnny. I really, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I'd really like to be a writer. He says, oh, my brother's a, a writer. And I'm thinking, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy tends bar like Johnny does. And he says, no, no, not Jimmy. Uh, our younger brother, Tommy Ion. I said, what do you mean, Tommy Ion? He He's a writer? I never, you never even, I didn't even know you had a younger brother named Tommy. Oh, well, we don't talk about him very much because, well, <laughs> you know, he plays for the other team. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, I said, well, what did Tommy write? I'm thinking, you know, maybe he wrote some uh, uh, cereal uh, box jingles or something. He said, oh, he's in New York. He he, he just finished a show called The Dirtiest Show in Town. And, and uh, next year he's got this thing called Dream Girls coming oh, out. Oh, boy. For God's sakes, you know, here's the only other writer that I know of that came uh, from, from Cambridge. Cambridge and, and an astonishing playwright at that. And they don't even talk about him because he happens to be gay. That's that's the kind of place uh, it was. And, uh, yeah, lack of models. Oh, God, you know, uh, I'm telling you. So, we, we, so because the of tenured the tenured lesson, the tenured no, but I'm lesson. just saying. So, were you, you must have been a reader in, in elementary school, or maybe not, or maybe mm. in high school. It became, oh, a big reader, a voracious you were reader, voracious. a voracious reader. I loved reading. I grew up uh, probably the last generation to have the advantage of growing up without television. Right. And uh, as a, uh, I went to the movies. The movies were uh, a kind of literature for me, and. Uh, they were in line with the kind of books that I like to read. I fell in love with the Oz series, the Hardy Boys. The uh, um, Before uh, the Hardy Boys, there was a series called uh, written by a guy named Franklin W. Dixon. Oh, uh, yeah. Tom Swift. Tom Swift. And a series of, uh, oh, and another series, Jane Withers, uh, uh, a sort of precursor to uh, the, uh, the uh, Bobsy Twins and the... And Nancy Drew and I, I read every single one of those books, hundreds of them. Uh, really, would would read one in an hour and sad that the library was closed or I didn't have enough money to run down to the newsstand and, and buy the next installment. And I uh, thought that every kid was like that. When I got to school, I would be asked to do a, an assignment, a writing assignment of some sort, and invariably I would, whatever the assignment was, I would turn it into the chance to write a little story and that I'd made up uh, in uh, copying one of those models, uh, one or another one that I just told you about. And I would turn it into the teacher, and she would kind of roll her eyes and keep from telling me, well, it was supposed to be something else, but... <laughs> <clears throat> this was very interesting and pat me on the head and you just keep it up, uh, Leslie, which is what they call me. That was my nickname at the time. So from the earliest time you got that kind of um, that kind of encouragement from yeah, teachers. Yeah, but I thought, I, I didn't think of anything uh, much of it because I thought everybody was doing this and I... And uh, you didn't think of it as a career possibility. Oh, so. no, I just thought that was what you did. Right. How did your parents handle you being a, a budding writer at that point. I don't think they saw me as a budding right. writer. I think they saw me as the kid who was going to go to the uh, Air Force Academy and then graduate and go to the, uh, get a uh, uh, law degree. And as I got a little older and understood how writers worked, I thought I'd be like William Carlos uh, Williams uh, uh, or Wallace Stevens. That you mean have a profession? I'd have a, per I'd be selling insurance or be a doctor and, and, uh, 
in my case, an attorney, and, and in between breaks and, and trying cases, I'd scribble down something on the back of a legal It's pen. really interesting. Most writers did do that. They had a profession. They did something else, and they were writing. You know, Some of them went to Hollywood and became screenwriters. It wasn't really maybe until the rise of the, of the graduate programs where writers could go and work as well, professors and that sort of thing. Well, if you wanted to keep food on the table or have a family, I, you did have to have something of a career because, the, you know, so many writers today teach in one way or another. I mean, that's the staple fallback position for for so many writers because there are so many people wanting to study writing and writing programs. And if I can say, Les has put together probably one of the great writing programs in the country right here in uh, in South Florida. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Dennis Lehane was, was a Dennis student Dennis was here. one of our students, and uh, Barbara Parker, and also uh, oh, uh, Preston Allen, and Vicki Hendricks, and the list goes on and on. And, and there's on. an amazing array of faculty. About 200 books. We've had about 200 uh, alums publish about 200 wow. books today. And your faculty is... Tremendous, John. And Dufresne, they're equally uh, accomplished. Uh, uh, John Mac Dufresne, uh, Campbell McGrath, uh, they, who's a MacArthur Genius winner, and Julie Wade and Deborah Dean, who wrote uh, uh, Madonna's of Leningrad, Lynn Barrett, uh, Denise Duhamel. All right. So let me ask you a question: Was was going to law school before or after you managed a bookshop? <laughs> I uh, managed the bookstore after I dropped out of law school. Yeah. And tell the, when did you decide to drop out of law school? How did that happen? Well, shortly after I got to law school. Uh, that's when I decided I would drop out. I knew instantly, just like when I got to the Air Force Academy, I thought, what is this? I, I had no idea what I was getting into in well, at the back, Air Force step Academy. Step back. That yeah. I didn't know. So you went to the Air Force Academy? You were, yeah. I didn't know that at oh, all. Yeah. So tell me about that story. Well, it was a big deal, and from this, I uh, believe I was the second person, maybe I was the first person who'd ever gotten an, a, an appointment uh, to one of the wow. service academies from Cambridge, and uh, it was a big deal, and a free ride. I mean, not only tuition and books, but <laughs> clothes and food and, and uh, you know, room and board, everything. The only thing you had to give up for that, though, was your freedom for the next four years after you graduated. And uh, one of the things that figured into, other than the fact that you actually, I, I learned that when you were in the Air Force, somebody said what you were supposed to do and you had to do it. Uh, it was called following orders. <laughs> And uh, that had never been my strong suit. Uh, I was never a particularly rebellious kid, but uh, you know, I was like a mule. I didn't like uh, somebody telling me what to do, and I realized that was the way I was going to work for the next eight years. And uh, so it didn't take me long. I finally talked my uh, way out of there and back into studying at Ohio State University. And, uh, and that's where you graduated from. No, no, I didn't stay there either. I... I I ended up graduating from a small school called Muskingum College in uh, New Concord, Ohio, where the, uh, there were three famous graduates, uh, Agnes Moorhead, a uh, wonderful actress, John Glenn, the astronaut, and Jack Hanna, who became yeah, Hannah the director of the... No, no, different. Uh, he, he became oh, he director was... of the Columbus Zoo and right. then hosted a number right, right, of... Right. Uh, he started the zoo programs on, on TV. And uh, I used to double date with Jack. Uh, 
Wow. And we had we dated two sorority sisters together. <laughs> so you were in school with him, actually. Yeah. So then you went to law school, and you dropped out of law school, and then you went to do the bookstore after that. That's correct. And were you writing all this time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. For it was yourself, my lifeline. it was your lifeline. You would. How would that work? Tell me how that would work in your well, life. Uh, all the way through college, uh, and, and at least through Muskingum College, which is a liberal arts school where they let you indulge yourself to a certain degree, though they didn't have creative writing classes. It, again, uh, from time to time, I'd find a way to, uh, in taking an English class, turn in a paper that was really a short story, that sort of thing. And then I would feed my uh, professors stories and poems on the side, and they'd say the same thing. My grade school teachers had said, pat, give me a pat on the back and say, that's real good, and keep on uh, doing that. And uh, uh, when uh, I then dropped out of law school, floundered my way back into graduate school in psychology, which had been my undergraduate major at Muskingum. Uh, listen, this is a time during the draft. You had to stay in right. school or you were going to, so this uh, is like you're going to Vietnam uh, uh, as, a, uh, as an enlisted man. And so that was a, a, a big incentive for me to stay in school. And so I would stay. I stayed in school, even though I never found anything that I was particularly crazy about doing. I, then I was managing a bookshop in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, it was it was a B. Dalton. I remember you it, telling the, me. one of the, it was the first B. Dalton outside of Minneapolis. It was right. the beginning of the chain. It was the actually was uh, in Pick Minneapolis. Way. It was called. Uh, Something Pick, else. I think and, Pickwick, right? Uh, or, I can't tell you. It was, at any rate, it was a Minneapolis chain, and for the, they built their first store in, in, uh, that they called B. Dalton in Columbus, uh, in the Eastland Mall. Anyway, so I'm, I'm uh, managing this, but knew that this was not going to be my life's uh, ambition, although I thought about, well, maybe I'll run a bookstore of my, because, again, you had to take orders from the people who ran B. Dalton, and I'd rather have my own bookstore. <laughs> And do what I wanted to do. And uh, so I'm thinking about that. And what am I going to do? And I, I had talked my way into a creative writing class, uh, discovered there was one at Ohio State while I was in psychology graduate school. And that took some doing. The professor said, but you're a psychology graduate. Right, I said, couldn't right. I just let me try here? And I showed him some of the work I'd done. And he said, okay, come on in. And then did well in his class. That was spring term. School was out for the summer. And I said, what should I do now? And he said, you should go to a writer's conference. I said, great. What's a writer's conference? And he explained to me what it is. And I said, well, where should I go to one? And he said, took me upstairs and uh, showed me a thousand brochures and said, pick one. And I picked one that had mountains uh, on the cover, which happened to be at the University of Utah. Went out there. Uh, walked into a class that was being taught by a man, a wonderful writer and a wonderful man named George Garrett. Uh, uh, ended his career as Henry Hoyne's professor of literature at the University of Virginia. had written about 50 books. And he was talking about life and art. And after about 20 minutes of this, I said, wait a minute. I don't want to be just like George Garrett. I want to be George Garrett. I finally had found my calling in life. That's I realized that he was walking into a college campus classroom a couple of times a week, talking about life and art and drawing a paycheck. And I said, voila, that's it. 
that's me. And uh, I'm going to do it. So from the kid who wanted to leave Cambridge, you f- it was a long and winding road, but you found your calling at some point. But it seems like the thing that always ran through it was the fact that you always wrote. Mm-hmm. That was You read and you wrote, and that's what you Never always did. Never took it seriously. Never realized that that's the only thing I was going to be able to do to stay Until sane. Until you saw George Garrett in that classroom. It clicked, the light bulb went on, and I never had another doubt about what I wanted to do. There was plenty of difficulty then becoming George Garrett or trying to become George Garrett, but uh, at least I finally knew what I wanted to do. Well, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what you're doing right now. You're listening to The Literary Life. We'll be right back. We're back with Les Standiford, and what I'd like to do, Les, is ask you, you know, we, we've learned about your background, your history, uh, why you do what you do, which is clearly a sense of passion, a sense of love for the written word, and also because you love teaching. Talk a little bit about the teaching aspect of what you do. Well, I think that there are those teachers like Mr. Chips who are these beloved figures. They walk into a room and people just feel at ease with them. I don't know if I'm that kind of teacher or not. I've always felt insecure uh, about that. I, I wish I were uh, Mr. Chips, uh, but you know, I'm not going to claim to be Mr. Chips. But having figured out a couple of things uh, on my own, I mean, I was out of graduate school, out of that program at the University of Utah, and had with three novels, unpublishable novels in the drawer. I published a few stories and, and poems and essays, but I wanted to play in the major leagues. That was the minor leagues. I, I wanted to publish a book. I, I wanted to get the big leagues, and I, I wasn't able to do it. And, and then something happened uh, a big game changer in, in my writing life where the, again, uh, tantamount to having met George Garrett, the door swung open and a burst of light fell upon me. And I, I, uh, the next thing you know, I'd, I've now published 24 books. And uh, having had that sort of uh, revelation, when I go in to teach now, it is with the sense in my mind that, listen, I have something to tell you guys. James W. Hall and I used to think that the way you got published was you buddied up to some famous writer, and if they liked you enough, then they would take you aside and whisper the secret in your ear, or they would see to it somehow that you became their acolyte and you in turn would be uh, uh, their uh, uh, follow-up apprentice. But we came, and the fact that that never had nobody ever took us under their arms meant to us it just meant that we had somehow failed to curry favor enough. But when I went to the American Film Institute and studied screenwriting for a couple of years in Los Angeles in the early '80s, see, it, it suddenly I realized what nobody had ever uh, talked to me about in all my years of study, and that was how to tell a story. And that's what writing in in uh, Hollywood's all about. How do you tell a story? And this is something that my teachers had never taught. We got workshops in, in my graduate school. We'd all sit around and talk about how good our sentences were, right. which is important, 
mind you, but nobody ever talked about what the sentences were in service of. Once I figured that out, it, my teaching changed, and I, I and tell my writing changed. Yeah, my well. writing changed markedly. I had success, and I came into class and said, look, I'm like a recovering alcoholic. I've only got one thing to talk to you about, but it would be criminal of me not to try to give you the same gift I got, and that is the importance of uh, understanding how important it is to write with intention. And so when I teach now, that's what I'm trying to uh, work with students to try to get them to understand the importance of having intention as you write, not just writing, but intending to do to accomplish something. It doesn't matter what they intend to accomplish. Uh, I hasten to add, but it is essential to have that. It's intention. so interesting you say that because the one thing that I, always happens to me when I read literary criticism or I read any kind of criticism about books. Very rarely do critics take the intention of the writer into consideration, which is always something I thought and think critics ought to do and see whether or not the intention of the writer has been actually achieved by that writer. Well, all too often, it, it, the critical piece uh, is about the book that the critic would have written. Exactly, exactly. So, all right, so you're, 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 you're back in Miami, you're writing, but... What I know about you is that your life has been peopled with some of the most colorful literary figures that have ever we've ever seen. And I'll throw out, you know, one named uh, Jim Crumley, for instance. Oh, James Crumley. So talk a little bit about James Crumley, someone that I've always loved from Last Good Kiss to all of his other wonderful works. James Crumley was to mystery writing as Anthony Bourdain was to food writing. They were cut from the same bolt of cloth. They had the same kind of energy, the same kind of appeal, the same kind of damn it all uh, uh, approach. I didn't know Anthony nearly as well as I uh, knew Tony, as well as nearly as well as I knew Crumley, but uh, instantaneously, uh, right after Kitchen Confidential meeting and talking with Bourdain, I thought, geez, he's, he's Crumley uh, in the kitchen. And uh, that's the kind of guy uh, Crumley was. Fabulous. If, if uh, anyone listening has never read The Last Good Kiss, it's oh. one of the literary experiences of the 20th century, one of the best uh, noir thrillers ever written. And can, continues to be, even despite all that's been written since. And you, you met him in El Paso or you yeah. met him in Utah? Oh, I was teaching in, at El Paso and he was banging around Texas and I finally convinced him to come and teach there. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after he came to teach there, he came into the office one day. He said, hey, I heard uh, this guy, old pal of mine, is looking for a job. Uh, I think we could use him. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, his name's Carver, Raymond Carver. Yeah, that, was the ne- that was the next name that uh, I wanted to ask you about. And he said, don't worry, Carver's sober now. Well, I had no idea. I didn't know who he was talking about. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear it. Well, let's bring him in for an interview. And I came in. And, uh, you know, and uh, Crumley painted it as if he was this hell-on-wheels actor that made Crumley himself a hellion uh, look tame. For people who don't know who Carver is, why don't you talk a little Uh, bit about Ray Carver? Raymond Carver became, uh, uh, since uh, long after his time at El Paso, it's where it began, it became known as the preeminent a short story writer in America, probably the best short story writer after John Cheever in, in our contemporary history. And whereas 
uh, Cheever could write a 40-page short story. Uh, uh, Carver could do the same thing in four pages. Right. Uh, that was the, the beauty of it. I'm working on a book uh, right now uh, called, the title I think I've got it, uh, Mar-a-Lago. Oh, I've heard of that place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the subtitle is Power, Passion, and the Making of Palm Beach. Ooh. It's really kind of a study of class, uh, uh, history of class in, a, in America, how it's changed uh, you know, from the days of the Mayflower uh, up to the present. And Mar-a-Lago and Palm Beach is at the, at the center of it because that was the nexus of change when, when the idea of what uh, a blue blood was uh, in America uh, no longer a son or the daughter of the revolution began to change in the in the And then climate. we had an upstart come in and, and sort of mix it up in there, right? Well, the, it ends with, uh, well, just who you think it might uh, end with. The man who will not be named. <laughs> <laughs> not a political book, but a history. I mean, he figures uh, significantly in the history of class in America, and that's his role uh, in this piece. Let's, uh, maybe we can we can wrap up by, let me ask you, a question, because I know you're also a big reader who has, you know, develops their own passions for a writer now and again. Who who are you passionate about today? Who who have you rediscovered that? Before we get to that, I want to tell you that the book after that I'm, I'm champing at the bit to write is called The Rapture of Elephants. Right. And it's Bailey, uh, Barnum, and Ringling and the battle for the control of the American circus. Which set was, back in the golden It'll uh, start in the, the in the 19th century, right? Yeah, at the end of the 19th century. And these guys wrestling to what was uh, to take control of and shape what was at the time. The most, the single most popular form of of entertainment. Look, as a bookseller, I can tell you, people love reading about circuses. Well, so the it railroad, the well. circus, uh, these are things that uh, really strike a chord in me. So I can't wait to finish up with more Allegro, which I'm having great fun with, and get to that. But you asked me uh, who uh, I'm passionate about. You know, I came across on your uh, remainder table the other day, as a matter of fact. A book called Why Gatsby Matters. And uh, it was a book by an NPR reporter talking about why uh, Gatsby is still important, why it continues to uh, uh, cast a hold over American readers. And there's that old saw, when will the, that question, when will the great American novel be written? And as far as I'm concerned, it has been written. It's, it is a great Gatsby, slender a volume as it uh, may be by Scott Fitzgerald. And it really encapsulates everything you need to know about the American character and tells a wonderful uh, story uh, in the process. And it is, has always been, and I think will continue to be elusive of the attempts of filmmakers to change it from what it is. That's the proof of its power, is that it uh, is untranslatable into film. They keep trying uh, to no avail. They do. But they do. Uh, uh, they're and, always And what's interesting things. about it, because it speaks to every generation as well in their own particular way when they read it. Yeah. Well, for one thing, everybody always thinks it's about Gatsby. It's really about Nick Carraway who tells the story. And to try to bring that to screen uh, is almost an impossible task. But I love to teach that novel because uh, I think it is almost perfect uh, in its in its execution. And that's, that's the book that... Uh, that I keep coming back to the pinnacle of achievement. If I could do anything that even had a glimmer of the power of that, that book uh, before it's all over, I'd be quite happy. Uh, I would be happy for you as yeah. well. 
Les, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank it was a pleasure having, having you. And uh, Always a pleasure to talk to you. We do this, uh, just in case anybody wonders, we do this all the time. Yeah, we do. Not, not just uh, here in front of these microphones. The thing about Les that I should say is that when you go to his house, um, what you have to have when, when all the listeners come over to Miami sometime, come ask me and we'll take you over to Les's house so you can get one of his... Most amazing martinis. Blue Glacier. Blue, a Blue Glacier martini. There's something about writers and martinis <laughs> that uh, go hand in hand. Les, Thank you, thanks. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.